0: Hello and welcome to Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby. For the thinking woman in today's Australia, Annabelle Crabb is somewhere between a household name and a minor deity. On the occasion of the publication of her quarterly essay titled Men at Work, she and I had a conversation about how desperately low our expectations of fathers are and how this is reflected not just in our homes, but in the way our policy is built. Thank you all so much to, for coming along today for this conversation with the wonderful Annabelle Crabb. I am Edwina Throsby, and I run the Talks and Ideas program here. So we're here today to talk about Annabelle's uh, recently written and released quarterly essay called Men at Work, The Parenthood Trap in Australia, which is an extension, I suppose, of, um, of your book from a few years ago, The Wife Drought, in which you made a... Very convincing case that men in public life benefit um, disproportionately from the unrecognized and often unpaid labour of their female partners, and that that relationship isn't reciprocated typically across gender lines. So I was wondering, Annabelle, with this essay, what, why did you feel, what, what direction did you want to progress that argument into, um, and why now? Well,
1: uh, I, I wanted to progress my relationship with the editor of Quarterly Essay, Chris Fike, beyond the point where he was constantly emailing me asking me to write a Quarterly Essay. (laughs) Like most writers, I'm a sort of slumbering, lazy person that really has to be jabbed repeatedly (laughs) to to jump into action again. Sorry, that's probably a bit unfair on both of us. But um, I think when I wrote The Wife Drought, I did... One of the puzzles that I was left with was, what's the deal with men, right? Like, because... One of the things that... um,
0: And she gets it all into a book this size. It's less awful
1: than it seems. But, I mean, one thing that amazed me just looking into the history of women and work in Australia is just how incredibly women in Australia have transformed our lives over the last 50 years. I mean, it's been amazing. um, Our move into the workplace and our, on average, retention of a lot of what we were already doing kind of in the home, and there's a lot of juggling. um, Lots and lots of um, women in Australia work part-time, for instance. Australia's got a really, really strong part-time work culture, and most of that um, is women. So something like 45% of um, Australian mothers work part-time, only about 4 or 5% of Australian fathers. So that's the kind of, you know, that's this disparity. But, you know, when I was researching the wife drought, I had some people who would say mate, no man wants to look after their own kids, like... ..and anyone who says they do is just lying to you, right? Like, no, people will argue that. And um, uh, Edith Gray did this really interesting research on the behaviour of... um, Fathers of new children, new babies found that they, on average in Australia, work about five hours a week more after the um, <laughs> the birth of their first child than, than they did beforehand. Who and, wants to get home at 6 o'clock? Well, I mean, that's no. why I, I do say th- th- this, you know, in the essay. I mean, I, I have to rationally understand that, you know, um, if you have the choice between, you know, a, a nice, predictable working environment where, you know... You put a pen down and it stays there and, you know, it's sort of <laughs> and work And people surfaces, appreciate you. And there's, you know, um, you get positive feedback and, you know, money and stuff like that, I guess. You know. Um, or you could go home and be there for the moment when the, uh, you know, juvenile attention span and the adult stock of patients expire within 15 minutes of each other um, just as the sun goes down. Um, but, see, I don't believe that um, I don't think that's right, um, I, and I'm, um, I kind of at the end of the wife drought said, well, look, you know, I think that there are definitely forces at work, you know, in the Australian workplace that do encourage men to be this ideal employee, you know, whatever else is going on in their lives, and that's what fuels um, what they call the, the, the fatherhood premium, mm-hmm. uh, which is that men who are fathers are considered more employable, more reliable, um, more promotable uh, than women who are mothers. Um, And nowhere is that that, um, presumption in Australia more radically and clearly demonstrated than it is in that great Natsem modelling from a few years back, which found that they worked out what um, a 25-year-old man uh, embarking on an average career... 40 years in an um, average paying job, what he could expect to make over the life course and um, they calculated that that guy would make $2 million over his career but if he had kids it would be $2.5 million whereas um, a woman, same qualifications, same skills, 25-year-old starting out on uh, an average career could expect to earn $1.9 million over that 40 years but if she had kids it went down to 1.3. Three, I think, 1.3. Um, so that's how the same kind of biological event, becoming a parent, can have massively different effects on the lives of um, two working people, depending on what gender they are. Um, so I wanted to just... I found that when I was writing The Wife Drought, I was fascinated with women and what happens to women and, um, and how this intersection of home life and work life um, leads to very specific results in each of those spheres. But what I wanted to do with this essay was to look at men and just look at, okay, and not in a kind of like, oi, you, pick up after yourself sort of way, but in a kind of like, okay, well, so why, why is it that, you know, after 50 years of really significant change mm. in, you know, the women that they still statistically very commonly live with and interbreed with, um, I mean, I don't ever assume that every relationship in Australia is heterosexual, but it's still quite a common lineup, right? Um, so I wanted to have a look at, well, what is, you know, what are the pressures? Because one thing that I really learnt from the wife drought is that the... The things that dictate people's behaviour at work are never contained in the HR manual, right? Like, I mean, we make our decisions about what we do at work based on a whole bunch of other stuff. Whatever else is going on in the rest of our lives, what are the people around me doing, how do I see others behaving? And so I wanted to look at what the impact was of those sorts of assumptions on men's behaviour, mm. in a loving way.
0: <laughs> I mean that <laughs> it, it, it's like we've got three sort of things that are interplaying, right? We've got we've got the politics around this. Yeah. We've got the legal situation around this, and I think most importantly, we have the culture. Yeah. And I think that that's what you kind of get into in, yeah. the, in this in this essay.
1: And all of those elements have have. Um, little teeth and claws that dig themselves into the
0: flesh of men and make them behave in a certain way. That's right. So, I mean, one of the... Th- in your essay, you, you take a, a jaunty little, little stroll down the I history do. <laughs> of, um, of paid parental leave in Australia. Yeah. And, that, and that was really interesting, and I'd quite like to start there because, because I was super surprised by that. I actually didn't realise how discriminatory, really, the discrimination laws are. Yeah. So would would you mind just giving us a little... I would love to.
1: (laughs) Settle down, children. uh... (laughs) So um, I wrote quite a bit in the wife drought about um, Australia's old legislation that was called the Marriage Bar, and um, that was the federal legislation. It was legislated in the 1920s, I think, um, that prohibited female uh, Commonwealth public servants from keeping their jobs after they got married. So, for a long time in Australia, if you worked uh, for the Federal Public Service and you got married, you were legislatively obliged to quit your job. And we held on to that legislation for ages. Uh, The UK had a similar legislation and they ditched theirs in about the 1940s. But for some reason, we just hung on to ours for years and years and years, and in fact, it wasn't abolished until 1966. So, like, There would be people in this room who um, had an impact that that had an impact on their lives. Um, Anyway, imagine the absolute crick in the neck these women who were Commonwealth public servants got when six years after that ridiculous law was repealed, in came the Whitlam government. In 1972, Whitlam legislated a Commonwealth maternity leave scheme. So, and all of a sudden it was like, hey ladies, don't worry about quitting your jobs, go ahead, have those babies, and you can have 12 weeks of paid maternity leave, 1972, and also up to a year of, um, of unpaid leave. So, it was an extraordinary change, and it was because Whitlam was trying to bring Australia into line with um, international ILO conventions, um, which had been avoided by the governments um, preceding him. Um, And so that extended this sort of blueprint. It kind of um, introduced the idea that women should have the right to return to work after taking time out of the workforce to have their children. But it also established this sort of assumption in Australia that a a year was probably about the right amount of time to be out of the workforce if you're having a baby, which... um, has gone on to become quite a powerful presumption in lots of ways. And then... um, So that percolated away, and you had the private sector kind of coming around and offering um, private um, uh, maternity leave provisions in a sort of hodgepodge sort of way. And at this point, it was only for women too, right? Right, Mm. yeah, it was maternity leave. And so this is how, you know, culture changes. Um, And then... Decades later, when um, Jenny Macklin, who had been battling for a long time to get her own party to adopt the notion of a paid parental leave scheme that would be available um, to all taxpayers, not just public servants, she finally got the labor party conference over the line on that it was not an easy process some of these um, some of the resistance to these programs both kind of back in the 60s and 70s and um, through to the early 2000s was um, led by kind of well conservative union leaders in some part um and colleagues in the labor unions. right mm. yeah so um, but anyway jenny Macklin eventually managed to legislate the current paid parental leave scheme, right in the middle of the global financial crisis. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary thing that she pulled off. And now, I think, we are aware of the fact that that scheme is um, absolutely dominated by women. So in the, I don't know, eight and a half years that it's been legislated, the Commonwealth paid parental leave scheme, which is 18 weeks at the minimum wage, it's means-tested, and it's done amazing things, particularly for low-paid women who otherwise would not have been offered parental leave by their employers. So, I mean, it's been an extraordinary thing for um, a great number of women. But in that time, it's been taken up by uh, 1.2 million women, which is lots, and in that time, it's been taken up by 6,250 men. So, less than one half of 1%. Now, the way that scheme works is if you're the birth mother, you apply for it and then you can transfer it to anybody else, you know, your partner, um, but it really does not happen very often. Mm. It's quite tricky to do. And there's a secondary scheme called dad and partner pay, so you're absolutely sure about who the primary caregiver isn't going to be. And um, that's <laughs> been taken up by about, I think, three or 400,000, so... Even if you kind of assume that in these relationships the mum is taking paid parental leave and the dad is taking dad and partner pay, there's not as big a take-up among
0: men of that secondary scheme, which is two weeks. There's, there's an issue, too, with the language around that, because, because yeah. the idea of primary and secondary carers... You can see why it was introduced, right? To, sure. To, to make yeah. space for same-sex couples, yeah. to recognise that families do this sort of juggle, but at the same time we're evolving to a point where that language isn't perhaps as useful as...
1: Well, yeah, I talked to Jenny Macklin about this and she said, well, look, yeah, we, we called it primary carer so that, you know, it wasn't... Um... She said, like, that we, we wanted women to have an opportunity to recover from childbirth but we didn't want to um, be exclusive of same-sex couples so um, it's primary carer is the way that we've described it. But um, over the years that that term's been used, I think that there is a bit of a shorthand that's involved which means that's the birth mother Um, and it's really interesting the way um, even though a lot of um, private sector um, parental leave schemes are similarly directed to the primary carer, there's no gendered language being used and yet when men apply for it they do experience a bit of blowback. in the states, there's been this really interesting series of um, legal cases over the last few years. Um, I mean, the most recent one that was um, publicised was J.P. Morgan Chase uh, was sued by uh, a broker who was a guy who um, applied for parental leave and they refused it unless he could um, provide evidence that his wife was so dis- dis- um, so. Uh, um, Unable, Incapacitated. on mental... Incapacitated. Incapacitated yeah. is exactly the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, <laughs> or debilitated. I was not realise what I was going for. Anyway. Um, so he sued them. Uh, I mean, they settled and then they ended up setting up a fund to compensate other men that they had rejected because they were, seriously, they were, even though the language was gender neutral, they were saying, but really this is for women, not for men. Um,
0: And it's not just the gender neutrality of the language, it's the implication of a hierarchy as well. Right,
1: yeah, and and this idea that if you've got two parents of a child, you've got to pick a lane. Like, who's the one who's doing everything and who's the one who's basically a sort of helping person that is just a bit (laughs) like... And it's sort of... It's funny um, because it's so entrenched. And yet... And I know heaps of families that don't work like that, but it's sort of something that we've got to all fit into in some way. Um, and the interesting thing about Australia, because I r- was reading about all these American cases and thinking, right, well, there must be... well, haven't I read about any cases in Australia? Um, surely there must be some pissed-off dads that have, you know, um, had a bit of a go. And um, I rang <laughs> uh, ran, um, the uh, Equal Opportunity... Um, uh, what can I think, commissioner? Why can not I think of uh, name words at the moment? Kate Jenkins, lovely lady, um, and I said, "Oh, you know, I can't find any case law about this." And she said, "Oh no, you won't probably because um, it's legal to discriminate against fathers in matters of parental leave and whatever." And I'm like, "What?" Oh, yes, yes, it is. Um, so the Sex Discrimination Act, which was drafted in 1984, and very hard won by Susan Ryan, a great uh, reformer in the Hawke government, Section 31 says nothing in this anti-discrimination legislation um, prevents any employer from um, making special provisions for women in the area of um, childcare and, um, and and childbirth and so on. So, um, at the time, you know, that legislation was drafted, it was addressing all of these issues that were um, being faced by women in the midst of this great flow into the Australian workforce. And I think one of its unforeseen consequences is that it does really devalue the idea or not even take um, account of the idea that a man might be a primary carer of a child or might want to be or might be wanting to move in and out of the workplace in the same way that women have become really good at doing um, over the last few decades. And I, you know, I I do think that's outdated. Um, I could not possibly quantify among Australian fathers how many are the kind of like, oh, my God, I'm not going down there until everybody's asleep, you know, and how many are, you know feeling a bit sad that they miss out on stuff or that they can't work flexibly or change the way that they work to um, match the other stuff that's going on in their lives. But it really bugs me that I think men are in many workplaces still prevented from finding that out. Um, And that's what I'm writing about in this essay. Um, The Diversity Council of Australia did some really interesting research recently among millennial fathers and what they discovered was that there was a really significant desire among millennial dads to work differently to work flexibly to work to have more involvement in their kids' lives than their own fathers had and yet the gap between aspiration and reality was quite significant so for instance I think was 79% of them wanted to work a compressed work week you know where you work like the absolute clappers and then you leave early on another day or um, have, a, have a day off or whatever, and, um, but only about 25% of them were actually doing it. And um, my view is that, um, based on the research that I've done, that Australian men feel um, and they rationally fear adverse consequences should they um, try to work with the same flexibility that um, women commonly do.
0: And there's a justification to that fear, really, isn't there, with the way things are set yep. up?
1: Yeah, there are. Like, So um, uh, Bain did some research, I think two or three years ago, um, that established that um, men's requests for flexible work were about twice as likely to be rejected um, as women's. Um, also, the experience of men who work flexibly um, in Australia... Um, again, in the Spain research, demonstrated they have a different experience from the one that women have. Um, The Equal Opportunity Commission did a huge report on pregnancy and return to work in 2014, and they had um, a chunk of research, too, on fathers that had taken parental leave, and about 25% of them reported um, harassment or ill treatment of some kind on their return to work, ranging from, you know, just adverse comments to all the way to dismissal. And um, I think it's very true in Australia that we, while we expect women to change the way that they work when their family obligations, not even just having children, but, you know, caring for elderly relatives or sick family members or whatever, um, we are prepared to countenance women changing the way they work much more than we are prepared to countenance men who
0: do the same thing. Well, I mean, even the notion of a career path is for a woman is relatively new, you know. I mean, right, and, yeah. And I think that, you know, this, this points to a couple of things, I think. Um, I think it, it's about the way that we value, you know, traditionally female-valued... Yeah. ..female-performed work and, and how we don't value the caring economy um, at all. But I think it's... You know, I was, when I was reading your essay, I was thinking about this kind of... ..this, this entrenched public-private binary, right, that... that, mm-hmm. that you know, it's been only a few decades that women are increasingly more tolerated in public life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, there's a bit of distance to go there yet, but yeah. it's not like, you know, people don't kind of freak out at the idea of a... <laughs> most, of a people. <laughs> most people. Most um, but, people. Um, but the reverse can't really be said. You know, when you are a stay-at-home dad, mm. there's this kind of double double reaction, like on one hand yeah. it's like, you are amazing, look at that boy, with his, look at that man with his little I baby, know. isn't he amazing? Let me just look make you a casserole, kind of, oh, I think I'm ovulating, yeah. yeah, all that. Let me just...
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but then there's also this kind of, you know, it's a bit masculating, you know, what's yeah. going on, his wife must be a real career bitch, or like, yeah. you know, like, like there are yeah. all of these kinds of narratives around that that are, yeah. that are kind of deeply negative. I mean, how do you negotiate that as a guy that wants to spend time with your family? How do you...? Well, do you know, I mean, it's like any other social, um,
1: uh, cultural assumption. It's really only changed... I mean, you can't really legislate for it. Mm. I mean, that's the awkward thing. You can't really pass laws saying, from now on, nobody will think it's weird for a bloke to take parental leave. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just... But the way that it changes is through um, workplaces, generally. I mean, and um, I have had a look at a couple of big companies in the SA who have changed their policies and achieved a change in behaviour pretty quickly. And... It's because, you know, we are herd animals, you know. Like, we don't... We're sensible. We don't believe governments that tell us how to behave a certain way. We don't even really believe what's written down in the HR manual. What we what we do notice is the way other people behave and the stuff that other people get away with without being, like, without an anvil dropping on them from the sky. <laughs> and so I always think that... Um, I mean, governments can tweak. Um, they can... Create a legislative environment that allows people to behave in certain ways or feel free to, but really, it's workplaces that set the tone, and that tone is often set by um, senior people in a workplace, and also watching other people um,
0: kind of get away with it. You know. <laughs> so, what sort of tweaks? Because what what sort of tweaks can you make? It's, it's, is it around the sort of language that you use to describe? Is it around making leave? Paid leave compulsory. What sort of leavers um, do you have to look? Call? So
1: in Australia, our paid parental leave scheme is look. It's unlike some of those big European schemes that people weep about in you know Norway and Sweden and so on, <laughs> where because we don't have the same kind of welfare sector, we don't have a kind of like a um, a social insurance approach to welfare. So we um, our scheme is publicly funded. It is. I've at the minimum wage and it's means tested, so it's very targeted. Um, and it's, it is not enough money to be like a serious kind of option for a, a replacement breadwinner wage in some families, right? So um, it has that difference from the uh, European schemes. But one of the... Tweaks that have been used in a bunch of countries, and I write about this in the essay, is just making a certain chunk of the paid parental leave available only available if the non-birth parent takes it, right? And as well as the birth parent, or you could you make your If you make you make a bit of it, Mm. use it or lose it. Yeah. And that's actually a really intelligent little bit of a tweak because if you assume that, I mean, you've got to know and understand the behaviour of the people who are um, eligible for the scheme that you're designing, right? And we know that in Australia we still have a really quite deep-seated male breadwinner model, like as as our kind of default mechanism. And we know that men feel as though they are responsible for earning money and breadwinning and being reliable and so on. I mean, like, that is, you know, uh, shown again and again. And that's something that men feel not only at work but also at home, like in a lot of circumstances. And um, so if you can actually organise a scheme that allows them that doesn't violate that sense of identity but also um, brings an added benefit to the home um, that is tied to changing that behaviour, then that's an intelligent way of doing Mm. it, you know. This is how I can both be present with my family and provide at the same time. That's kind of quite an intelligent tweak that has changed behaviour quite significantly in um, Germany, Sweden, Norway. Um, Canada, if we're sort of anxious about talking about European countries or Scandinavia, which is always just annoyingly good at this stuff. Um, <laughs> I went to this conference once and um, <laughs> this, the Norwegian ambassador, This I think she's now been repatriated, but her name's Unni Klövstad, and she was giving a talk at this conference that I went to about the Norwegian system And she was talking about, well, you know, we have excellent childcare and it's um, childcare expenses are capped at, you know, 300 euros a month. And there was this kind of, like, moan of longing. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like all these Australian women in the audience were like, (laughs) <laughs> that was so good. And uh, $300 you know, a month. A month, yeah. I mean, like most of these people in the audience would have spent that on, you know, parking fees for dropping off their kids. Um, <laughs> but, but Canada did this really interesting thing um, where just, just Quebec... Um, changed the, uh, their approach to the public paid parental leave scheme. The rest of Canada just sailed on exactly the same with the same scheme, but Quebec changed their model and they introduced a use it or lose it chunk of paid parental leave that was only available if the dad took it, right? And um, so you had this amazing kind of study with a control, yeah. and yeah. And because Canada also does um, this brilliant and we've done it a bit in Australia but we tend to drop it every time we get into budgetary trouble which is regularly so we do it peripatetically and it's quite annoying if you're a a social researcher because it's bloody awesome information. This is the time use diary where you get like thousands of families Mm. to fill out a really kind of insanely detailed um, account of their time and that's the only way we really have of measuring domestic work because we don't do any other sort of measurey thing like pay for it, so it's sort of, <laughs> the diaries are really useful, it um, helps you plot over time what the change in the share of domestic work is. I mean, uh, on the statistical upside, Australia hasn't changed all that much, so it's kind of like, maybe we right. miss out on that much intel. Um, but uh, in Canada, they've done really good time use diaries, so they could actually work out not only um, what the change in behaviour among Quebec dads was under this new scheme, but they also could work out whether there were like knock-on effects for things like share of domestic work and um, the behaviour of women in terms of employment participation. And what they discovered was, yes, um, creating this use-it-or-lose-it model um, in Quebec did um, sharply increase the number of dads who took longer parental leave, but it also found that among those families, the mums went back to work earlier and they went on to have a more even division of labour within the home. Now, there's heaps of research around that shows that even if um, dads take um, quite a short period of parental leave with a new baby, that their connection with that child is deeper over their life course and also that they um, they are involved more in domestic work. Exactly. So this is where, you know, the experiences early in the life of a child can actually have quite significant
0: knock on effects. Well, because there's this sort of assumption culturally that the act of pushing a baby out through your vagina sort mm. of magically confers the knowledge of how to parent know, that baby yeah. to Whereas, you. The lived experience is, of course, that everyone's an idiot with a newborn. Like
1: nobody. This is it. There's this whole, but women just know. Sorry, we no, just do not. No, 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 not. we don't. Yeah. We really, really don't. No, at all. No. And the truth is that the, the really um, significant learning curve, like when there's a new baby, is in the first few months, like where you work out. When you're not you know, killing it. Right. Yeah. Where you just <laughs> like, oh, like cardigans, how do you put those on? Like it's so like right. all of that stuff. And then it gets into all this other complicated stuff like, you know, who's allergic to nuts in the friendship group of this kid? Like, whose birthday is it on Saturday? Later is it Mufti Day? You know, all of that stuff. And because in this country, thanks to Goff in 1972, there is, like, still quite a strong tradition that women will take a year off. And Kate Jenkins actually made this point to me, which I'd never really considered before, but she said, look, I just... I think that that... It creates a bit of a presumption that that's how long, you know, maternity leave is, and a lot of stuff happens in that time. So, for instance, um, in the orthodox arrangement, the mum gets really, really good at doing all of the kids' stuff, and also has really like because she's at home has taken on you know, a whole heap of the additional domestic work that arises with a kid as well. And so at the end, it's just like, oh, my God, I can't go back to work full-time, you know. um, So it sort of helps to perpetuate that model. And, you know, most dads who are, you know, at home for tops two weeks um, kind of go back to work and then um, all of the learning and the expertise is amassed at home in their absence. Mm -hmm. And that, look, it's it really plays a big role in, in determining what happens next, what happens next time there's a baby as well because next time not only does um, the mum have this incredible bank of knowledge but she probably also has a much lower income this time around too, making it a total mm. no-brainer who will be you know, doing all that next time around. Now, I don't sort of say this... Um, at, <laughs> I'm, make this point because I've um, recently been accused of disdaining the work of the home, um, which I don't. I bloody love the work of the home. Like, I mean, you know, I do heaps of it and I don't try and get out of it. But I do think, too, that, I mean, people should be free or families should be free to organise their lives in the way that best suit them. And, like, heaps of times it makes sense for one person to um, be the breadwinner and for the other person to you know, take responsibility for more of the domestic stuff. But our culture assumes that that will be a man-woman arrangement, like that it's a gender thing, when really, I mean, it should be a practical thing where all people are different, you know. Everybody should be able to make up their minds about how they're going to operate their own lives without these sort of overarching assumptions that are imposed by history.
0: How does it play out in same-sex families? Do we have... Ah, well, that's, um,
1: that is really interesting. There is, like, not um, a great amount of research available yet, but what there is, there's a little bit in the States, um, it suggests that people do, like... Um, ..they do divide up um, into um, breadwinners and homemakers, like, to a, like, significant degree. But, of course, it's just not long gender lines. They just do it on the basis of, well, who's in what job and um, whose job has more flexibility, whose job has a better parental leave scheme, you know, Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff, which kind of makes sense, you know, but in heterosexual couples there is an additional assumption about who that should probably be. There's this great, um, really interesting piece of research done at Adelaide University just last year. Um, uh, The lead researcher was Ashley Borgfist and um, this team did some really in-depth, interviews with, um, like, quite a small number of um, men about their, what guided their behaviour and the um, observations they made about their own experiences. And, I mean, most of these men they talked to did, you know, um, did vary their work in some way to uh, account for their children. But to the extent that they did, they they viewed it as a workplace privilege, you know, like, I am, Yeah, I sometimes come in late because I read with my kid at school, but I'm allowed to get away with it because, you know, I'm quite senior or because I've got a good relationship with my boss. Like, all of them talked about it like it was something they were kind of getting away with. Or they talked about, you know, the fact that they were model employees so that they were afforded a little bit of flexibility. But there was this one guy, actually, who was talking about... how he doesn't work flexibly, but his wife does, but his wife gets paid more than him. So um, he said, so really, I mean, I guess if we were being, you know, economically rational about it, um, she would be working more hours and I would be being part-time. But, I mean, I've worked my whole life to get to where I am um, in my job. (laughs) So it would be absolutely silly for me to go (laughs) part-time. And I just—it's so interesting because you hear so many women say, well, you know my salary won't cover the childcare or whatever, you know, um, because that's the other weird thing about um, uh, heterosexual couples in Australia. We, su- we somehow hypothecate childcare costs to the woman's income, which is weird because, like, there's no other household expense that is directly tied to the woman's income. You know, you hear all the time people say, oh, you know, I can't, well, you know, if I go back to work, my salary will barely cover the childcare. Um, but you don't ever hear, you know, people yeah, like, saying, oh, well, we're thinking about getting a tent because my share of the income doesn't <laughs> cover the, you know, mortgage or whatever. It's, it's sort of interesting. And, like, stuff like that you don't really think about until you really have it spelled out and then you think, oh, that is weird, isn't it? Why are we like that? I don't know, funny humans. Yeah.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that you, that you say is that it used to really annoy you. Um, Hearing female CEOs be interviewed oh, yeah. and how they'd always be asked, "How do you juggle it?" You know, oh, how no, do you? and you'd get enraged by that. But then you thought about it and realised actually it's a perfectly sensible question. It's a bloody sensible. And question. the outrage is why we're not asking male CEOs. Yeah, how they and juggle it.
1: I mean, I start the essay talking about the um, lovely discrepancy between our kind of the global heart attack we had when Jacinda Ardern got pregnant, like, ah, oh, my God, (laughs) how's that going to work? And, you know, God, she has become this poster woman uh, for uh, parenthood and leadership. Um, And yet, not much more than a year later when we had those certain events in Canberra um, last August that ended, uh, you know, during a week in which we flirted with the idea of Prime Minister Dutton and then, ended up, oh, my gosh, with um, Prime Minister (laughs) Morrison and Treasurer Frydenberg, um, which was an interesting uh, event um, or an interesting way for the week to pan out, just ask Malcolm Turnbull. Um, (laughs) But the second that they were uh, appointed by the party room, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I mean, with the first Pentecostal prime minister and Jewish treasurer that we've ever had, I mean, sort of ecclesiastically original, uh, apart from anything else. (laughs) Um, But also... They've both got little kids. Um, So Scott Morrison has primary school age kids. Josh Frydenberg's are even younger. So his little boy was a toddler at the time um, and a preschool age daughter. And I was just really interested to see that nobody asked them, how are you going to manage these giant jobs with these little kids? Because actually hadn't happened since the mid-70s, that a prime minister and a treasurer both at the same time had little kids. That was like Fraser Howard was the last time that was the case. So um, I found that really interesting and I kind of griped about that for a bit and then I thought, well, come on. You could always just ask them. So I did. (laughs) (laughs) Just after giving myself three or four weeks of moaning about it, I then did ask them. And it was interesting because as soon as I asked them, It was just really, I mean, both of them are very attentive fathers. I'm not saying they're um, anything but. They're both unusually besotted with their kids, so I'm not saying they're not loving fathers. But it was really obvious that neither of them had really been asked the question before because, you see, you ask a working mum who's senior or get, people get this question all the time. I mean, I I know, I get asked it all the time. How do you manage everything? because it is a good question to ask. Um, but so, you know, most of us have got this sort of, you know, little laminated card in our purse, <laughs> that says, well, <laughs> here's how it works. You know, like Mondays are like this, Tuesdays are like that. You know, uh, Wednesdays I have a heart attack most weeks. And, uh, you know, and, you know, mine is all about... I mean, my partner works um, uh, a half day from home once a week, which is awesome. Um, and, you know, we divide up. Domestic tasks in a way that is pleasing to me. I he does laundry and school forms. I do cooking and you know um, more school pickups because I can work more flexibly. Anyway, blah blah blah, boring. But um, the I just you know both those guys were super rusty with this question um, because it was sort of like, well, you know, we do Skype as much as we can. (laughs) No, no, I mean. It's sort of like how to catch up with your kids,
0: rather than oh my god, who does all this stuff? Well, this is the thing, and th- and this is this is what what struck me reading it is that it wasn't just that that they were sort of unprepared for the question, having not been asked it much. It was like they kind of couldn't understand what you were asking. Yeah, you know, actually, mm. like yeah. like 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 the whole framework of the question yeah. was was foreign. Yeah. Um, what do you mean? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, like 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 yeah. you know, answering like all we Skype is is lovely, but it's. It wasn't the question, the question was...
1: Yeah, and, and the answer really is, I have this amazing wife who, right. you know, and heaps of the Australian um, political history is based on men being in office, supported by incredibly capable spouses. And this is, you know, I've kind of... This is ground that I covered in the wife drought, you know, because having a, having a spouse who doesn't work full-time or doesn't do work in the paid workforce is like a total goldmine. Like, I mean, that is a professional asset because it means you can work long hours in this absolute confidence and knowledge that your kids are being looked after um, in a way that means you don't have to look at the clock and think, oh, God, it's 10 to 5, I've got to go, you know. And um, that is an amazing thing to have. It's a great um, uh, asset... And um, after a lot of chasing about in the wife drought, I eventually established the answer to the question that I went into writing the book with, which is like, what proportion of working dads in Australia have a spouse that works part-time or is full-time at home compared to um, full-time working Australian mums. That's what I wanted to know and it was, I couldn't find it for ages, like I did this sort of lazy journal googling, I couldn't find that, all right. Went into the census data, poked around, you know, and I could find out, you know, how many men were working part-time and full-time and um, at home full-time and how many women were, you know, working full-time, part-time or not in the paid workforce. But what I wanted to know was which of you people are married to each other? Like (laughs) that's what I wanted to know. And Jenny Baxter, who's like a great, great researcher at the Australian Institute of Family Studies, um, who I cite um, a lot in this and also in The Wife Drought, eventually went to work with her software and her giant brain and kind of established the figure that I was looking for, which is that 76% of uh, full-time Australian dads, full-time working Australian dads have a spouse that works either part-time or not at all in the paid workforce. 76% Wow. I know, right? (laughs) <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> and the corresponding proportion of women, like full-time working mums with the same arrangement is 15, 1-5. Mm. So, that's how, like, it kind of explains a lot of stuff that you see in the workplace because, I mean, like if you're both, I don't know, lawyers and you're incompetent, you're both wanting to be partner or whatever and you've got two kids and one of you is a man and one of you a woman, one of you is five times more likely than the other statistically speaking, to have someone, like, picking up the dry cleaning and, you know, the Mufti day and the, you know, all of that stuff, which is pretty amazing. Like, that's a pretty solid
0: advantage in the workplace. It yeah. really, really is. The other thing that I think is interesting in all of this is that there's often, I think, an assumption that the staying home with the kids you're just all playing. You're going to the park and you're reading books <laughs> and you're drawing pictures. And isn't it lovely? And if I were to not be at work doing that, it'd be a bit of a bludge.
1: Yeah. There is was that feeling, and even when um, we were back at the twenty fourteen election. Which election was? That? Oh my God, my brain. Um, More words. When Tony Abbott was pitching his um, his parental leave scheme, which was going to be a much more European-style one. Remember, like it was quietly mm. it was, 2013, it was quietly uh, strangled by his colleagues who were horrified it was going to be funded by a tax on big business. And they were like, oh, God, what? But he'd had this big epiphany because he'd gone from, you know, there'll be paid parental leave in Australia over my dead body. Um, and then I think all of his daughters then became of working age. He was like, oh, Dear God, it's terrible. Like, it (laughs) went quick. So, he then unveiled this, like, incredible sort of um, European-style paid parental leave scheme which eventually bit the dust. But in that election campaign, there was a debate where this guy asked a question. He was a uh, truck driver from maybe Rooty Hill or wherever, nearby where this debate was being held, and he said, And it was, like, amazing, I'll never forget this question because it articulated something deeply felt, you know, um, in the Australian psyche. He said, um, well, I'm all for parental leave, but why should I be paying taxes so that some pretty little lawyer on the North Shore can have a baby? And that was his view. And I thought, oh, yeah, it's interesting because there is this assumption that, you know, paying... For somebody to look after a child or have a child is like a bit yeah. of a bloody bludge. It's a bit of a bludge. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, it's uh, it's the interesting thing is, I mean, I do have a talk uh, in the SA to a couple of organisations that have made big changes to their um, paid parental leave schemes and brought about some big changes in behaviour, and I've talked to um, some people that. Um, men that have taken parental leave and like a serious chunk of it. And it's interesting that, um, I mean, they report people around them going a bit like, ah, oh, mate, bit of a lurk, isn't it? And they're like, wow, I had no idea how hard it was until I was in amongst it, right? And um, I think the, the longer that men spend on parental leave, the more aware they are uh, about what goes into, you know, raising babies. And um, the evidence suggests that they come out of that with um, uh, a greater
0: tendency to... Engage more in the work of the home. Well, this is the thing, but 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 it it's got a, a knock on effect to the workplace as well, right? Sure. So people go back to work. Men have reported to go back to work with higher levels of empathy, better organisational skills. I mean, there is no person more efficient in the yeah, workplace than the out. person that has to make the da- the daycare pick up by six o'clock. Right? You know? Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah. Look, and I mean, the a lot of these changes are happening in sort of big. Uh, white-collar organisations because they're the ones that are moving towards flexible work. They are um, the ones that are intensely competitive with each other for talent, right? Like I was talking to someone from PwC and they've kind of implemented this um, uh, flexible approach to work and um, changing their parental leave scheme and I was talking to um, the diversity HR person there who was saying, oh, well, you know, we are really competitive with other firms for talent. Part of the reason that we change our parental leave scheme is to attract um, people uh, and also to retain great staff and keep them feeling satisfied um, to work at our organisation. He she said, well, we're a millennial firm, essentially. I'm like, oh, really? What's your average age? Twenty-seven.
0: So, I mean... So, why do you think that the private sector is leading in this area? A couple of reasons. I think that there is, particularly
1: in the leadership of these big firms, um, quite a... a, I think there's a strong role played by leaders like um, Liz Broderick, the previous Mm -hmm. Equal Opportunity Commissioner, who did a huge amount of work targeting C-suite executives specifically men in these big organisations and she did something diabolical actually, like so clever, I mean appallingly clever in many ways. And that is, you know, because uh, traditionally um, things like, you know, gender equity was um, a thing that women argued for as a sort of like, this is the fair thing to do. And so, in every sort of big company, you'd have some nagging woman who was like, what about the, why are there more women? They'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe appoint another woman, keep her quiet, whatever. But what's happened, I think, in the last decade is that the argument or the workplace debate about gender equity has become much more of a business case model thing. So, there's yeah. a heap more research into not just, you know, gender equity as a fair thing to do, but also, um, as a smart thing to do, as you have more and more resources sunk into research into whether diverse organisations make better decisions and do better in business and there is an overwhelming um, weight of evidence to suggest that's the, that's the case. Um, I think uh, uh, there's also now, particularly among these sort of um, professional services firms, There's a real race on for talent and a great um, emphasis on retaining good staff. And if you can build confidence and earn the respect and trust of an employee by showing them some trust and allowing them to integrate their work and family life better, then um, you end up with a more engaged employee who's less likely to skip off and accept a better offer. And I have to say, too... There is um, some rather dreadful research that um, indicates that if you give people flexibility to um, organise their life and work in a way that um, decreases the stress uh, of that interaction, they're actually capable of doing more hours of work Mm. a week. Um, There's a very frightening IBM, um, huge IBM study into this, into what they call the break point, which is literally the point at which your work and family um, uh, obligations escalate to the point where you openly break down and start drinking cooking sherry in the afternoons. Like, <laughs> it's sort of like, and it's something like, you know, 60 hours a week or something. I, I'm making up the numbers here. I can't remember exactly what the numbers were. But they worked out that if they are... they. <laughs> Parents who were allowed to work flexibly could then increase their breakpoint hours by like another 20 hours a week or like they could do heaps more work if they were allowed to just do it while crying in their pyjamas. Now, I'm not sure, (laughs) I'm not sure that's an awesomely healthy thing, but certainly, you know, flexible work has a lot of advantages for um, big employers because they, you know, if you're hot desking, you're not taking up as much real estate Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, you can actually squeeze more work out of people before they have a mental breakdown.
0: The capacity semi- for exploitation. Yes, right. I know. Yeah. It's
1: kind of like so. That's uh-huh. the that's the seamy
0: <laughs> underbelly of this uh, this area of enterprise. But um, there you go. So we are going to be taking questions this afternoon. So if you do have a question that you would like to ask Annabelle, if you could start making your way to either one of these microphones, which are down the bottom of the staircase. Shall here? I talk about
1: the graph while they're shuffling to the? Um, Microphones. There's one graph in this essay. I hate graphs, so there's only one.
0: You can tell she's from South Australia because she says graph. Uh, That's right. Uh, I also say dance and
1: chance. So, um, this is a graph that was um, assembled by the aforementioned Jenny Baxter from the Australian Institute of Family Studies. And she, this is a graph. I can't show it to you because it's little on the page, but um, you'll have to buy the essay. If you do buy the essay, Flip to page 11 and let it rock your world. It's a comparative average graph of what happens to mothers and fathers' employment hours, parenting and childcare hours and housework hours upon the birth of their first child. It is breathtaking. And uh, (laughs) when Jenny first unveiled it to some conference, everyone was just like, oh. So
0: there you go, page 11. Feel the love. It is. It is. The, the numbers are shocking. Um, I've just got one more question for you, which yes. is: looking forward, with the sort of increase of the gig economy and yeah. people increasingly not working with the big companies that are likely to be, yeah. or the or the or the public service organisations that might be sort of offering this sort of um, leave. Yeah. How do you think that we need to manage that from a policy perspective? Is there a way that we can deal with people that? You know, the Uber drivers or the... the, um... Well, it's a really tricky one
2: because
1: um, the kind of casualisation of a big chunk of the workforce... Which
0: impacts on women disproportionately as well. Sure,
1: and it has, you know, all of the advantages that we look for in flexible work, which is the capacity to um, ratchet up and down your work hours as and when um, it suits you, but it also is kind of a super low-security environment and doesn't help with what is extraordinarily um, plain as a big problem for women when they spend um, more time out of the workforce um, than their male partners, which is just terrible, terrible superannuation Mm -hmm. um, down the track. I mean, the disparity between men and women in superannuation in this country is just um, shocking and that is something that rolls on into a huge contribution to homelessness and poverty
0: and later life for women. It feels like we're at a bit of a sort of you know historical moment where there could be a will for change in this brewing, Um, but that is kind of coming up against factors like the gig economy and like you know the kind of decline of the union movement and those sorts of things. I mean, in your sort of ideal kind of Annabelle. Annabelle created future. God, um, do you think that would have much appeal? <laughs> the uh, the but, sort of floppy Annabelle for over. No, I no. mean, you know, in terms of people, you know, in this room who want to see, you know, proper policy yeah. change and and cultural change on this, you know, what 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 are we hoping for? How do we how do we bring about a situation? Are we hoping for more generous government leave? Are we hoping for a shift in? Look, I think that you could. Um, I mean.
1: The, the current paid parental leave scheme um, costs about $2 billion a year, so
0: it's not cheap. Um, but it's also comparative to other OECD countries. It is
1: among the cheapest mm. of the OECD um, countries. There is one OECD country that does not have a public paid parental leave scheme. It is the United States. Um, that's not going to change anytime soon. Um, <laughs> look, I mean, <laughs> one thing that I haven't gone into this essay, uh, it, because it... it it would be another essay entirely, is childcare. So Mm. that is a huge factor in the ability of people to um, incorporate work and family together. I mean, like, you know, childcare is expensive and clumsy and awkward in Australia. And that is a huge crimp on um, participation Mm. um, of mothers. Um, So... Yeah, that is something we could do. We could also retool the parental leave scheme, in mm-hmm. my view. Maybe even just rename it, but anyway. I've <laughs> um, got a question.
0: Yeah. My
2: two, too, please. I assume this is on.
0: Yes. It's on. Good. good. You're good.
2: Um, my name's Eleanor. I just wanted to um, ask about a slightly different situation. Mm-hmm. So my girlfriend took 12 months off to have her child, and she went back to work because she earned more money than her husband did. Right. And... As a result, she actually ended up resenting him because he was spending a lot more time with their child than she was. Yep. And um, when her daughter got to about four, she took another year off so that she could spend time with her before she went back to, before she went to school. And so I was just wondering if you had actually looked into the issue with regards to resentment on either side between men and women. Oh, the, the, the headline news is there's a stack of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, between men and women about, you know, one going to work and the other person staying home and who's missing out on what.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, there's resentment everywhere. I mean, ask anyone, you know, about the sleep economy (laughs) in the household (laughs) with a little kid. You know that thing where the baby's crying and you both pretend to be asleep? You're like... (laughs) pretty sure it's your turn. I'm pretty sure it's your turn. Anyway, so... But actually, you touch on something that is really, really interesting and uh, is sort of an Australian phenomenon. I'll try and, um, I'll try and summarise this quickly because it's a massive field of research and it's really fascinating and a bit frightening. Um, because of the way that we, um, uh, uh, the way of our assumptions that our cultural system works sort of at a deeply baked in level in Australia, we do have this sort of male breadwinner model that is the norm. Um, And so when people um, violate it in some way by doing things differently, it can lead to knock-on resentments and insecurities and so on. So there's another um, researcher called Janine Baxter, not Jenny Baxter, Janine Baxter, who was part of a team that did this amazing research, I think she's from UQ, um, that looked at the the work patterns of... um, the domestic load of women as they started earning more money and then as they became the primary breadwinners in households. And it's so crazy that they had to, like, absolutely go back and recheck their um, data again and again because it seemed to be a uniquely Australian pattern. But here's the way it works. Um, From a sort of zero start, as um, a woman earns every 1% that she earns of the total um, household income, as it climbs per 1%, she relinquishes on average about 15 minutes of housework. So, like, I think it's... I could be getting the numbers a bit wrong, but... And that... So that she's doing less and less and less housework as her income climbs, up until the point where she is earning 66% of the total household income, i.e. she's become... A small margin, the primary breadwinner, and then her household our housework hours start to climb again. It's like a it's like a, a U curve like this. I've written about it in the wife drought. It's amazing, and it is um, an Australian phenomenon. And it is based the best explanation they can find is that. By, violate, by being the primary breadwinner, the woman is violating a kind of a deep-seated presumption about how she'll behave as a woman, and so she compensates for it by picking up other stuff. And that explains... Wow. I can see... I don't know. I can see like a 100 or 200 people just going, do I do that? I don't know. And oh, it was funny, when I was writing that, I was thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then I was thinking about the previous week when I had like was going away for work and I compensated by baking until like midnight and packing lunches, even when, you know, my partner knows how to pack lunches. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, right, yeah. We are so pathetically guilt-driven. It's so funny. Um, anyway, um, I probably haven't a- answered anything um, useful about your friend. I'm sorry. <laughs> (laughs) But, like, (laughs) it's a complicated field and it's full of um, really fascinating um, sort of cocktails of what do I want to do, what's easiest for us, what does my partner want to do, and then what do our broader family think we should do? Because often when this happens, like, the biggest resistance comes from immediate family saying, oh, why are you doing that? Oh, you know. Um, don't you want to be with your kid or isn't it going to damage his career or, you know, all of that
0: stuff all sort of blends in. I think it is an important point, though, because, you know, in the same way that there's a sort of discrimination potentially against men who want to be with their children in a weird way, there's a very strong discrimination against women who don't so much. Or want to go back to work, yeah. Or do you do go back... Yeah. Mm. And
1: there's um, a great Canadian study um, that looks at the um, experience of um, caregiving dads, non-caregiving dads, caregiving mums, and non-caregiving mums in the workplace. And what they discover is that it's not really your gender that gets you into trouble with this stuff. It's the violation of what people expect you to do. So what they found in this study is so interesting and really revelatory and, for me, actually, represents the spread of experience across the genders, not just concentrating on, you know, the bad things that happen to women at work. What they found was that the people who did not get a hard time in the workplace were non-caregiving dads and caregiving mums because they were behaving the way everybody expected. But the ones who got the real kind of like, hmm, really, were the men who um, worked differently to look after their kids and the women who didn't. Mm. They were the ones that got the
2: harassment and the, you know, funny looks and everything. Brutal. I think I think that is changing. If you don't mind me just saying, I actually work for a company that has flexible working hours. Yeah. And I think the culture with, with companies like that doing what they do where it's flexible working hours, I see a lot more men leaving early. There's a lot more um, gender equality between men and women yeah, working that's... and men dropping off the kids to school, yeah. or picking them up and going, no, I've got to leave at five o'clock, I've got to pick the kids up. Yeah, mm. and I've
1: talked about a couple of... Um, uh, I mean, Medibank is a great example of a company that's... Um, they were, when they were privatised in 2014, they they moved buildings, and so they took the opportunity to, to move to flexible working. So one of the most powerful disincentives for people, you know, leaving early or arriving late or whatever to deal with kids is that sort of eyeballs as you walk in and as you walk out, this feeling of being scorched by the stares of people who are like, but I'm going back, I'll be still at work at 10pm, you know, (laughs) but like, "Mm." and so, but by um, hot desking, you kind of like remove that, Um, and the example that I um, use in the the essay of, of how medibanks managed to change their... Um, pattern is based on their decision to go to flexible work and then to incorporate a flexible a, par- a parental leave model that abolishes any mention of primary carer. Mm. It just says, um, OK, so if a kid's come into your life because you've pushed it out personally or you've been intimately involved in its creation <laughs> or, you know, you've adopted or fostering or whatever, then you get 14 weeks uh, full pay And you can take that uh, all in one chunk or two chunks or you can just work a three-day week until it's gone or a four-day week or whatever. And that has been what has finally tipped their um, participation by men. So they introduced it 18 months ago, at which point about 2% of the people taking paid parental leave, like long paid parental leave, were men. And over that short time, it's gone up to about 30%. Mm. Because it's been... Allowed, specifically, they're invited to be part of it, and they can structure it any way they like. So, Um, hi Anna Hello, my name's Elise. Can I just reach this? Oh, Um. you've got the short person (laughs) thing. I feel your pain. My questions around around paid caring industry. Remuneration levels, which tend to be, um, as you touched on earlier, not highly valued in Australia and is factoring into the Australian gender wage gap. Sure. So I was just wondering your thoughts around that, of how we um, get those wages up and or increase diversity in those paid caring roles. Well, how do you um, attract people to an industry that is structurally underpaid? You know, (laughs) it's sort of one of those impossible asks, right? Like, so... There's really, I mean, there's a, there's a policy side about what a minimum wage should be in that field and then there's a cultural side about, well, why are we underpaying this labour? Why do we undervalue it? Because we are accustomed to other people doing it for free, right? Like, it's... Um, and I think that all of these issues are connected, you know. You can't, um, you can't legislate to change people's sense of how valuable work is, the only way you can really convey how important and valuable work with children is, for instance, is if you've done a bit of it yourself. Then you tend to really get the feel for how important it is, right, and also how hard it is. So um, I think that if you uh, increase, as I talk about the involvement of um, fathers with very young children, you build a base of understanding and respect, but you also um, change the way that labour is divided down the track. I'm sorry, I wish I had an, an easier answer for you. I really do. Yeah, structurally change everything yeah. is the
0: <laughs> Start yeah. again, start again. <laughs> um, over here, please. Hello, my name is
2: Monica. I'm really interested in the idea that, at the moment, everyone talks about 12 months. Off as yeah. being a, a goal or
0: the mainstream idea for how much time somebody should be caring for a child. Um, I wonder what do people think about how long a child should
2: be cared for, like.
1: From the well, children point need of view. to be cared for even after that, you know. Like that's that's <laughs> a weird thing. Like, and I, you know, you, you often hear people say, "Well, what about breastfeeding?" I mean, a man's not going to breastfeed, is he? Hmm? Hmm? And I'm not arguing that men can breastfeed. Um, nor am I arguing that you know um, that everything should be 50-50 or whatever. I'm arguing that people should be able to um, make long-term plans for the care of their children that allow that allows everyone to do what they can and want to do. Like, I mean, um, I actually think a great model is each parent having six months. I mean, I think that's an awesome model. Maybe that's because the way that we first did it when um, we had our first baby and it worked incredibly well um, and it was sort of really only available because we were sort of moving between countries. Like, it was just sort of miraculous, really, that it kind of panned out the way that it did. But, I mean... um, In my family, that's led to a really great recognition from both of us about what's involved. Like, nobody thinks that if you're at home you're bludging. (laughs) (laughs) We probably more like think that if you're at work you're bludging, actually. (laughs) That's the way it's like, off you go to work then. Go get yourself (laughs) a coffee, why don't you have lunch? That's what it's like. I used to be so with our second child and I was home with, you know, this non-sleeping child and I'd be like, I wish I could go into a coffee shop with both my hands, you know. <laughs> I wish I could eat something that wasn't just crackers. <laughs> anyway. Use cutlery. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, look, I don't know. I mean, and, but I'm not going to be prescriptive about the way other people live their lives. I just think that at the moment there are restrictions, you know, like there are cultural restrictions that stop men feeling able to do the sensible thing with work and family, which is to go like the clappers when you can, ease back when you have to, and feel like you've got some control over your life. And that's actually just a sensible human thing to do. But we're sort of in this place where we think it's a sensible lady thing to do. Yeah. And we're kind of surprised when men do it. And that actually feeds into this, I think, really unfair perception of fathers. You know how, like, it's... You know, if you stood up in some, you know, accountancy firm and just said, women are really shit at adding up, like you'd be escorted around to the <laughs> Equal Opportunity Commission within, you know, seconds. But it's perfectly all right to stand around at the school gate and say, oh, I wouldn't get my husband to pack the lunches, it'd be all useless, or like, mm. oh, no, I wouldn't get him to do the washing because he's... Rubbish at it. And meanwhile, the husband's going, sweet. Yeah, no, I know. Like, <laughs> so there is such a thing as sort of like maternal gatekeeping, which is a very awkward thing um, for women to confront sometimes. But I think... But it, truthfully, like, if you, you can't whine about not getting
0: a hand if you're, if you're constantly, get away, I'll do that. I mean... But it does come down to efficiencies. And, you know, the point that you were making earlier that, um, that when men t- typically are excluded from... The early lives of their children, yep. the women develop efficiencies in this. And so right. if it's like, you know, 9 30 at night, the baby can't get settled, yeah. the mum can settle the baby. Oh, and, I'll do it. I know, know how to do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like like, like like that decision, just, you know, you just want the baby to go to sleep. And yeah. the most efficient way to do that is the way to learn how you'll... to do it. And right. to be
1: there for a bit of learning. So
0: this guy, Derek Rotondo, is the guy who
1: sued JP Morgan Chase. He um, he took long matter Um, parental leave with the birth of his second child and he said oh I just worked out like it turns out I'm really good at settling babies like I'm awesome at it
0: (laughs) and just think you know this is the thing how many untapped maybe we just never have found that Mm, out right yeah so we have time for two more questions Um, over there please
2: hello um Annabelle, Hi. thank you very much for your quarterly essay. I'm going to admit that I didn't finish reading it on the train on the way here. That's OK. So apologies... Something
1: amazing happens at the end. You apologies.
2: <laughs> well, maybe this question's answered, so I'm really sorry if it has been. So I'm really interested in this idea about um, men get a sense of identity and well-being from being with their kids, and I think that's really important and really, really valuable. And we know that older men in particular... Um, when they finish work, um, there's a real sense of loss for a lot of men and that's Mm. actually one of the ages at which men are more likely to spiral into depression and experience suicide. Do we know anything about how being with their kids and being with their families um, actually benefits them in older age?
1: Well, um, I haven't got specific research on longevity or anything like that, Um, but there is a really significant phenomenon with... um, men who have identified themselves as breadwinners and as employees or leaders or whatever for their whole lives, they get to the point where they retire and because they haven't really done anything but work, it feels like not only that life is empty but also um, their identity is kind of expired in some way. And I think that even though for women, you know, God, it's, it's not super easy to combine work and family when you're doing, like, 1.8 times the amount of domestic work on average that, that men are in Australia. But it makes you really good at toggling back and forth. And one of the hidden advantages of that work-wise as well, and I understand this really deeply from my own experience. I mean, I've changed the way that I work every time I've had a baby, basically. Um, because, like, I finished up at newspapers because, you know... Newspapers and babies get sort of tired (laughs) and emotional at exactly the same time of the day. It's just like (laughs) impossible to, it's hard to do both. Um, So I started working online and, you know, doing different stuff. And for me, having an enforced, you know, even if it's just a couple of months um, out of the workforce um, when I have a baby, it's actually really important thinking time about like, because sometimes when you're in your job, stopping what you're doing for a bit is an amazing thing because it gives you distance. You know, like, we're getting stuck in this work track and you think, oh, I'm generally pretty miserable. I don't know what it is. Oh, back to work again, you know. And (laughs) that is, um, you know, when you are forced to stop, you're like, oh, I hate that job. (laughs) I want to do something else. And for women, because of the way we work things, you get that opportunity, you know, um, because childbirth kind of, um, if you have a baby... It's a punctuation mark. It's a punctuation mark. Whereas for men... It's only really being made redundant that is ever, that ever provides that sort of, and it used to be conscription, but we don't do that anymore. (laughs) But, you know. At the moment, at the moment. They're the things. So, you know, um, I actually think having a bit of um, distance from your job is quite an enriching thing. Um, And also by the end of your working life, you're, you know, you're good at multitasking. Mm. Okay, last question.
2: Thanks, Annabelle. Um, you talked a bit about how we're seeing a change in white-collar firms. Yep. Could you say anything more about what we see in blue-collar firms and other parts of the economy where maybe there's different economic structure, it's harder for people to take unpaid leave and, and that sort of thing?
1: Well, um, uh, there's, a, there's some companies like Telstra, for instance, that have a um, white-collar and blue-collar workforce and they've rolled out um, uh, all roles, flex, um, across... Um, all of the parts of the workforce and are getting, I believe, um, a good response. Um, I think that particularly in um, smaller um, companies that employ blue-collar workers, there is a reticence to... There's a feeling that it's quite hard to um, install a kind of like a flexible work system. I think that um, that the award system is not... I think it could go further to empower people to um, uh, avail themselves of flexible work. At the moment, um, the uh, Fair Work Act says that employers are... Um, that, that employees are have the right to request flexible work. Now, um, it's not the right to get it, it's the right to request it. So, and that's been um, reinterpreted um, quite recently whereby... Um, uh, there is now uh, an obligation on employers to provide reasons if they reject a request for flexible work. But like there's, you know, I write in the essay about this um, oh, really quite heartbreaking story from a couple of years ago, a Sydney hospital, I think it was Liverpool Hospital. Um, two painters, the Zamet Brothers, um, brothers both employed as painters at this hospital, um, and they, for eight years, had been structuring their shifts so that they'd start at, I think, 6am and finish at 2.30 so that they could then pick up their kids from school. Now, um, they were not high-paid workers. Their wives also worked, so being able to collect the kids from school really made their work-life stress, you know, manageable. And then the hospital had this sort of... um, Efficiency drive. Efficiency drive, where they said to improve patient outcomes and whatever, we're going to make everything um, more regulated so you're not allowed to start early and finish early anymore. You'll be starting at 7 and finishing at 3.30. And they were like, come on, for reals? Like, we just want to pick up our kids. We're not slacking off. No. And so it went all the way to the tribunal and they had a four-day hearing and in the end, the right of the hospital to set the work hours of these guys was upheld. And so, and you know, they made the point or the union made the point that there were, you know, female admin staff who were able to flexibly structure their days to account for their um, family responsibilities. But it somehow was just sort of weird and not on for these guys to do the same thing. And I just think that, yeah, that was a really heartbreaking example for me. And it, um, it, uh, I think that um, a more
0: perceptive approach to, regulation and enforcement could only be a good thing. It is cultural shift at the end of the day. Yep. Well, look, we're out of time, but um, our friends at Glee Books are going to be selling copies of the quarterly essay in the foyer after this. Annabelle will be signing them. So if you wanted to purchase one, I encourage you to do so. And um, thank you so much for coming thank today. Thank you very much for missing the Sunshine. <laughs>
1: thank and thank you.